Hey, 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 Chica. Welcome to the Lavelda Show Women of Power podcast, the show where women share their personal power tools, the techniques, strategies, and ways of being which have enabled their business and life success. I'm your host, Lavelda Vincenzi, a female speaker mentor, speaker, and event host on a mission to unleash authentic, powerful female voices onto the world. In today's episode, we'll be uncovering the power tools of Suzanne Armstrong. Suzanne is an internationally recognized speaker, award-winning talent development expert, and author of Confidence for Life, Nine Secrets for Setting Yourself Free. In the last 20 years plus, Suzanne has spoken in over 40 countries, developed and trained over 500 workshops, and helped over 150 thousand people around the world transform their personal and professional lives. Her clients include some of the largest companies in the world, and she has a secret. Homelessness, addiction, and abuse at the hands of a notorious motorcycle gang are not what you'd expect to find behind a successful talent development expert. But these are the circumstances that taught Suzanne how many ways there are to feel responsible for creating your reality. While your story might be different, the feelings and behaviors we use, all in the name of what we believe to be right and possible, are the same. In recovering from her self-destructive lifestyle, Suzanne quickly realized that what she had was a thinking problem, that everything she believed to be true about herself and how to get on in the world was wrong and she needed to re wire her thought process. She embarked on a mission to learn everything that she could about how to interact with herself and the world around her. What she didn't know is that what she was developing was emotional intelligence. Suzanne Armstrong inspires people to look past their own self-limiting beliefs and take action to achieve a level of personal and professional success previously unattainable. Whether you are a leader, individual contributor, or an entrepreneur, she is a powerful mirror for what is truly possible if we just set ourselves free of our own faulty thinking and beliefs. This is a two-parter because, well, Suzanne's journey to success had me hooked. There were just far too many questions to cram into a single episode. And there is so much for all of us to learn about ourselves from listening to what Suzanne has gone through. So remember, all of the links shared in this show can be found within the show notes. The only way to make sure you catch both parts of this show is to click that subscribe button right now to make sure that you get updates when new shows are added. Now, I think that's quite enough from me for now. So let's get on with the show. I could not do this show and not interview this woman. So, um, her story is incredible. She, you know, she's done, she's been in the homelessness, addiction, motorcycle gang, like, you know, stuff you hear in Hollywood, like that was her life. And now, now she's an international renowned speaker traveling the world, running a multi six, multi six figure business, working with large international organizations. And they be calling her for like, she's been working with these people for years. I mean, talk about turnaround story. So my guest today is the incredible Susan Armstrong. Wow, you make me sound like totally fantastic. Yes, you are. I know, but I have to live in it. So, right, it never seems that way to us. You know, we never see ourselves as other people see us. So that was nice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, damn, I'm awesome. And I'm like, yeah, you are. 
I'm like, yeah, well, that's all true. No, it's true. Yeah. See, I didn't make any of it up. It is all 100% authentically true. So I kind of, I kind of want to rewind because people who would meet you right now would not know off the bat, like the story of where you personally came from and the journey you've been on. It's like living in two completely different worlds at almost completely opposite, well, pretty much completely opposite ends of the spectrum. So how did you find yourself in, like, if we go to the dark times the yeah i'm gonna take you back there i'm sorry but i just we're just gonna glimpse it we just want to glimpse it just to get an insight as to how how did you end up in those really challenging situations Hmm. so that's a really good question because the end of this story is actually the beginning of this story Hmm? so it is like oh yeah Hmm. it's it is like an actual cycle uh yeah that's that's all true so my life was a mess you know, it really was. Um, I was, oh, I don't know. Uh, I was an alcoholic. I think probably by the time I was 14, I started drinking wow. when I was 11 to numb the pain of being me, you know, to numb the pain. When I grew up, I just felt like I was so different. You know, I never fit in. Um, I felt like, well, I, I was raised to believe that if you want people to like you, you have to be perfect. And of course, there is no such thing. But Doesn't exist. Nope. But I didn't know that when I was a kid. So, you know, I spent years trying to be all things to all people all the time. And of course, because there is no such thing as perfect, I could never achieve that. And I always felt so different and like I was a mistake, you know, like I, I was worthless. My mother was a perfectionist. So you want to talk about damage from that. It wasn't my issue. It was hers. But, mm-hmm. you know, but as a kid, you I don't know. It. You kind of just take it on, right? That's how the world is supposed to be. That's what yeah. you're taught. Exactly. And, you know, every time I, I would dress myself, she would redress me. You know, I would try and make my bed. She would remake the bed. I would try and help her do dishes. She would remake the di- redo the dishes. So, you know, by the time I was 11, I was like, this is not going to work. You know, I don't fit in. I'm, I'm too different. I'm nothing I do is ever going to be good enough. And so I checked out of the human race. I just decided if I couldn't win, I wasn't going to play anymore. Mm. And I found alcohol to numb the pain of being so different. You know, now I know now that that actually wasn't the case, but still when you're eight, nine, 10 years old, you know, you just want to fit in, right? You just want to be the same, you know, you, I mean, I think that's human nature. Yeah. And I just seemingly in my mind, I couldn't. And so I just stopped trying and I found alcohol and eventually drugs that numb that pain. And when you're 11, 12, 13, you need to go on the street. I lived in North America at the time and you need to find those on the street. So that involved gangs. And then eventually I graduated to property of a motorcycle gang, not the nice kind, the FBI most wanted kind. Mm. So I've been shot and stabbed and beaten and left on the side of the road for dead and eventually escaped that. And wow. Yeah, spent two years trying to kill myself. So obviously I was a failure at that too. (laughs) And aren't we glad you couldn't figure that one out? And I don't mean to laugh at, I don't mean to laugh at suicide. I really don't. But, you know, the understanding how the mind works, we will always find proof that our beliefs are true. And so, you know, me failing to be successful at killing myself was just more proof to me of how worthless I actually was that I couldn't even do that right. So I don't mean to laugh uh, at it by any means, but, you know, for me, it was just proof of my worthlessness. So, yeah, so that was, um, yeah, that was the first half of my life. 
spent like that. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is a challenge. I mean, I mean, some people, I mean, that's a lot to start on that path at 11 years of age. And I know, I know there are people who struggle at points. I mean, you, what you've described is a really um, accelerated and extreme version. Um, you know, there are people who, who live with anxiety and depression and are, are kind of on the cusp of that, but just kind of stay, stay, stay the other side of it just about. But those, those kind of feelings to have taken them to that extent at such a young age yeah. and go through and come out the other end of what you've been through. I'm, I'm like, when I sit here and I'm like, there are some women who have some cause of power. I'm like, wow. What was the turning point? Was there a specific thing or was it more of a journey? No, it was definitely, um, it was a journey. And, you know, I told that story in what, three minutes. So there's a lot more to it than mm-hmm. that. You know, I, I mean, I suffered from medical problems when I was young that were created from the stress that I put myself under and trying to be perfect and all those feelings of not good enough I, I, that I had. I suffered a um, massive, serious clinical depression in um, my late teens that put me in the hospital. Um, so, you know, there were all kinds of things associated with that. So it was really a, a journey. I don't know that there was a turning point. I think if I, if I knew, you know, one single thing and I packaged that up, I'd probably be a millionaire because there's so this many is people it. that would want that, right? Yeah. yeah. She's got it. She got the golden ticket out of it. I know. But, you know, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, I, um, in the last couple of years of that, I had escaped the gang. Um, my father had kindly taken me in and I didn't want to be a burden on him. And, you know, what can I say? The perfection and the people pleasing. Oh, gosh, what a mess. What a mess I was. And so I found a boyfriend that I thought was a pretty good babysitter because I didn't actually need a boyfriend. I needed somebody to keep me out of trouble. Mm-hmm. He's a pretty good babysitter. And we decided that, you know, me working in bars probably wasn't the smartest thing. No. <laughs> Too much temptation. So I got a job in a, a lady's clothing store, you know, making minimum wage. And I, um, I always say I quit drinking. I didn't, but for about a year, I only had about four hangovers in a year, which was, you know, really good. Which is, I mean, considering where you were before, that was incredible. Uh, Oh, I used to, I used to have, I'm very small, as you know, but I mean, oh, I could put away a massive amount of alcohol. And I used to have the kind of hangovers that would take me a week to wean myself off of them. So the fact that I only had four in a year, to me, I, you know, I quit drinking. And then one day it was May. I remember very clearly it was May and it was a nice sunny day and I wasn't scheduled to go into work until 12. And I thought, wow, it's a beautiful spring day. I'll just have a beer. And yeah, that's all she wrote on that one. So I remember about four o'clock that afternoon taking, accepting another beer, a case of beer from the taxi driver. I called the taxi company to deliver me another case. Another case. Another case. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And I remember vaguely calling my district manager not the manager of the shop that i worked in but the district manager for the chain of shops and i remember telling her that i was a lousy person and i was a horrible employee and they deserved better than me and i quit basically i quit wow and yeah and that's about the entire memory of that day and then the next morning i woke up and um had a hangover obviously <laughs> And there was a warm beer beside my bed and I opened the beer and I took about two sips 
of the beer, and I had this thought that if I continued this way, I was definitely going to die in a gutter somewhere, which was yeah. okay. You know, that's what everybody expected. That's what I expected, and that was all right. But I thought, you know, if I try to do something differently, I could try and do something differently, but I was pretty sure that I was going to die then too, because I figured after everything, all those years of all of that stuff and living on the street and the gangs and all of that, that I, I was sure that I had a big giant L tattooed on my forehead, you know, for loser, right? Mm. L for loser. I mean, you collected a lot of proof over the oh. years with the experiences you'd been through as well. So it's, it would be hard to talk you into seeing anything different at that. It's such a low point when there's so much evidence to the contrary where you could just kind of, it's like when you're having a conversation with somebody and they'll say, Oh, but, and they can just ring. I mean, I, I wouldn't have wanted to have that conversation with you then. Cause you'd had a list like here are all of the reasons yeah. why this is the truth. Yeah. There's no way you could have won. You know, there's just no way you could have won that one. Right. So, um, yeah. So I woke up on that day and I took two sips of that beer and I, I knew that if I continued this way, I was going to die. And I, I was okay with that. But I thought, you know, what if I tried to do something differently? I was pretty sure I was going to die because of that big giant L that yeah. everybody would know and that I would never be accepted. And, you know, I'd be right back to the way it was when I was a kid. But I thought, well, you know, at least I would die trying. And so that's what I decided to do. And I knew that uh, I had a lot of physical problems, like a lot of physical problems. I was on an inhaler because I couldn't breathe right. I got wicked migraine headaches, I had violent mood swings. And I knew that no doctor would touch me and look after my physical health unless I quit drinking first. And mm -hmm. so I decided that I should do that. And that story in and of itself is, is a very long story, but I, through a series of miracles, found myself in a rehab hospital in California. And I spent uh, six weeks in rehab in California. Mm. And then I had to come back to the real world um, with the Tests. awareness, mm, with the awareness that nothing I thought was true was actually true. That I, what I knew at that point was all of the things that I believed about the world and about how we should function in the world were actually wrong. So I had this laundry list of everything that I thought was wrong with me and I prioritized them and I set about trying to fix them and rewire my brain, which I did and still continue. It's not a journey that will ever end for me. I will continue for as long as I'm alive. But yeah, I spent years rewiring my brain because I realized that all of those beliefs and thoughts were actually wrong. And most of what I learned when I was growing up was wrong. And I had to learn a different way. Wow. I mean, it's the commitment though. What I'm loving in what you've said is it's just that one choice. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a straightforward journey. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in the story. They were, you know, there were bumps, it was up and down, but having, having a thread where you can just have that little, that one little ray of hope where each morning you can wake up and, and re-choose it. You know, some mornings maybe you wake up and you forget to make the choice. <laughs> it's like today, maybe we'll choose again tomorrow, you know, but, but that, you know, cause sometimes it can feel like it has to be a turnaround of anything. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is, where I am today is not the place I want to be. And what I want seems so 
so far removed from where I am right now that it may as well, nothing short of a miracle is going to get me there. And when you're in that kind of scenario where it's, it's, you know, you're completely the opposite and it's delusional even to, in some ways, to be, to be thinking about those things, to just find the one thing you can do, the, okay, I need to get off the, the drink and, yeah. and, and just stick with that until you can master that bit first <laughs> and then you can, well, and you can pick something else, right? Yeah, unfortunately, that wasn't that easy for me. You know, mm -hmm. I, I went to that recovery hospital and I was the only woman and there were 11 or 12 guys there and it was just me. I was the only woman and I used to go to women, have to go to women's meetings by myself. And let me tell you, you know, these women would talk about hiding their wine in the back of the toilet, you know, wow. and, or hiding it in the washing machine. And I would sit there and think, that's so far removed from anything I understand. It's not funny. <laughs> And, you know, I thought, well, great, even if I open my mouth to share, even though I'm supposedly in a safe place, they're going to look at me and think, you know, this low life piece of trash. So I was pretty co convinced after two weeks that even though I was trying, it wasn't going to work. And I decided to escape. And uh, that didn't work either. And I, I had a, yeah, I know, right? I had a, an interesting 24 hours where I had tried, I sort of made my move to escape and it didn't work. And I went to a meeting that night and I knew that I was going to try and escape and I was going to hitchhike across the country and go back to the gang. And I knew they would kill me, but I was okay with it. I thought it's probably a fitting end. And uh, so I was sitting at the back of this meeting and I was crying because I knew, right, this was, this was pretty much it. I was kind of experiencing the end of my life. You know, I'd given this a shot and it wasn't going to work because they kept saying you have to believe in a higher power and I didn't mm -hmm. understand that. And they said, well, it can be anything. It could be a doorknob or a table. And I thought, well, that's about? stupid, you know, <laughs> I'm going to worship a doorknob. That's stupid. And that don't even make no sense. Well, it didn't. And honestly, it still doesn't. And I'm pretty involved and enlightened these days. And that still makes no sense. But anyway, so I was sitting there at the back crying, you know, figuring that this was the end of my life. And um, at all of these meetings, they, they give you a ticket at the beginning and there's a draw at the end. And all I remember is sitting there crying and the guy who had gone to the meeting with me was nudging me and he said, Sue, Sue, you won. Well, I'd never won anything in my life. And, you know, I remember running up to the front and grabbing this book and I wasn't crying. I was sobbing, you know, like the ugly kind. Wow. And I couldn't control it because I'd never won anything. And I, I just, I saw this as just such a sign. And I ran back to my room and I remember clutching this book and looking at the ceiling and, and saying, you know, you're not going to let me leave. Even if I want to, are you? And I, I heard a voice and it said, no, Sue, we're not. And in that second, in a, in a fraction of a second, all the times that I should have died flashed before my eyes. Like it was a fraction of a second, but I was aware of all of the times I should have died and I didn't. And I woke up the next morning with this knowledge is the best way I can describe it, but it was a knowledge that I wasn't supposed to die, that I was given this life for a reason and I was, I was being given a second chance and I had to make it count. So I made a, a deal, I made a commitment that day that whoever it was that had given me the second chance that I was gonna pay it back every single day and do as much good as I could and touch as many people as I could in a positive way every single day. And I'm so, you know, when I get up, got up in the morning, it wasn't, oh, I wish I'd rather stay in bed. There was actual fear in me at the beginning 
that if I didn't meet my commitment, that I would turn to dust and blow away because I just felt so strongly that I had been given a second chance and I had to make it count. I had to. Does that make sense? It so does. Wow. And boy, oh boy, have you been making it count. Mama mia. So what's it like 20 countries, 500 plus trainings? I mean, I think you've lost count. Over 40 countries, five, almost every continent. Um, Everyone except Antarctica. And Antarctica, she's willing. She is willing and able. And what is it that you train? Because it's large multinational organizations you predominantly work with, right? Yeah, it is. And what is it that you train them on? So this is part of the story. Remember I said to you, the beginning and the end are pretty much the same. Because it's a full circle. It's a full circle. So as I was starting to recover from all of this, like I said, I had my laundry list. And the very first thing on that list was I knew that real people, sorry, but that was my term for it. I didn't feel I was a real person. Real people had this thing called self-esteem. Now, I did not know what that was, but I knew I needed to get some. So that was the top of my list. So as I was going down this path of understanding what self-esteem was and starting to you know, work on my own self-esteem and develop that, it took about three years for me to recognize that I actually wasn't alone. That I, sure, I was gonna lose my life because my depth had gone you know, mm-hmm. low bottom. But I started to recognize that all of the people who were unhappy, who were just kind of suffering like low-grade depression, you know, they were in unhappy relationships, they didn't like their job, you know, they just, they weren't happy with life. But see, they didn't know that there was a different way. They thought that that's all there was and that they had to behave like this. And when I realized that, that I was actually lucky because I had to do this in order to save my life. Real people didn't even know there was anything wrong, let alone know there was a way to fix it. And so that's when I decided that, that I needed to start sharing what I was learning with other people uh, as a way to help them get better at whatever it was they were doing, whether that was their communication or their relationships or you know, productivity at work. Um, I started te- by teaching customer service and time management. So you know, both things I needed to learn myself. Um, so that's really how it started was honestly just a desire to give back. Wow. And how did you, I'm going to ask the question I know is on people's like minds, which will be, well, I don't know. We might have to split this into two parts. Let's see how we go. Um, but I know one of the questions that will be on certain people's minds is, okay, okay. So I can't, I can't throw the, it's so good for lucky for you, Suzanne, because like you, you, um, you know, you had a silver spoon in your mouth and blah, blah, blah. I can't throw that at you because, okay, granted, you started worse than I. <laughs> like, like you, when you say you started with nothing, we get it. We get it. We get it. You really, you really started with nothing. And the things you had, maybe they weren't going to help you at the time. It was just, you know, a bit of luck needed to be thrown in there. So how did you get started? Like, what were the were there some lucky breaks? Was it something in the way that you went about things? Like, how do you get started in something so new to take you on such a big path when you're starting from, I mean, I don't even know if we could call it zero, Suzanne. I'm like, I, I, I want to say it's ground zero, but you were not in a good place. <laughs> no, 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 
No, and even when I sobered up, you, you have to imagine it. And you know, it's interesting that you bring up that point because one of the things I run into today, and it's, it's weird for me, but I, I get it. One of the yeah. things I run into today is exactly what you just said. You know, when I start talking about confidence or self-esteem or emotional intelligence, all of those things, I can read people's minds and they're looking at me like, oh yeah, right. What would you know about it? It's okay for you. <laughs> yeah. Like, what would you know about it? And then I got to come out with a story to say, hey, you know, there was a time I couldn't get in a lift if there were other people in it because I was so afraid that, you know, I was going to have to ask them to move out of the way for me to get off at my floor, but I just took the stairs. That's how terrified I was of other people. I was so convinced I was worthless that I, I didn't even want to be in the presence of other people. It's terrified of people. And I get that people can look at me today and think, oh, yeah, what would you know about it? But the truth is, I know a heck of a lot about it, right? A lot about it. And so when I, um, I knew I needed this self-esteem thing, so I started studying that. And then I started creating these activities for myself that I could do to start raising my self-esteem, which is when I started to become aware that, you know, I wasn't alone in this. And then... I started um, expanding because I was starting to feel a bit better and I was starting to expanding, expand the study to communication. And they didn't call it emotional intelligence at the time because in the days before Daniel Goleman, but it was emotional intelligence. I was starting to look at how I, my uh, ingrained beliefs and how I communicated and you know all of the ways that I got in my own way. And I, one year I said, okay, I am going to say yes to everything. I'm not going to say no anymore. You know, I'm not going to let fear rule my life. And I embarked on this journey of saying yes. And I got myself, Lavelda, into some situations. You know, I got hired at a temporary. I wanted to work in an office. I just sound so, I don't know. But at the time, it was really important for me. You know, I wanted to leave the ladies' dress shop and I wanted to work in an office. That had mm. been my lifelong goal work in an office and I went and I applied for temporary work with uh, I think it was manpower or Kelly services but I it was manpower I applied for temporary work and you know I was terrified but I figured temporary work they could probably hire me for instead they offered me a job in the office and yeah I know and I didn't get it I mean I didn't understand it and I was pretty sure any day somebody was going to figure out they'd make the wrong decision you know so I was an imposter here they'll work it out talk about the imposter syndrome I mean I legitimately had it right for real reason and um so you know I worked harder than everybody else and then one day they asked me if I could do training but I was in the year of only saying yes so I said sure I had no idea how to do it but I did it and I liked it and people apparently liked it so I thought okay and then they asked me if I would be the account manager for this massive account. And I said, yes, and I was terrified, but I did it anyway. So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of being afraid, but doing it anyway, right? Because, you know, what did I have to lose? I couldn't mm-hmm. get any worse than what it, and I knew I could survive the worst. So what, what did I have to lose? I love so that. That's how it, it kind of progressed was me not being afraid to take chances and to take risks. And also that built the trust in myself. So I started to have a little bit more trust in myself. And then um, I think I was four years sober. I was maybe three or four months shy of four of five years sober and my father died. And that was massive for me. He was the one who actually rescued me. He was the one who sent me 
the airline ticket to the bar I worked at so I could escape the gang, you know, mm. and taking me in. So that was a massive blow. And, but a couple of interesting things happened. So um, one of them, after he died, I was driving down the road and I had this thought that, okay, my dad's dead. There's no point anymore. And I thought about suicide. And the next thought immediately after that was, mm -mm, no, that's not how you do this. So I realized that everything I had done in my life, including staying in abusive relationships and bad jobs, I did it to make my dad proud. Because see, my dad believes that when you get married, you stay married, whether you like the person or not, right? And when you join a job, you retire from that job, whether you like, you it, like or it or not. not. <laughs> That's how I was raised. So I had this instant recognition of oh my God, you know, everything I have done, including all the twisted bad stuff, in a weird way, I did it to make my dad proud. But mm -hmm. he was gone. I didn't have anybody to make proud anymore. So I hope this comes across in the way it's intended because my father dying, like I said, could have taken me over the edge. But it didn't. I, I felt an unusual freedom in that. And I felt a freedom from the conditioning. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, it's like you now have the choice to choose it to be different because right. were, it not, were it not for that tragic reality, the tragic situation, you would never have had to question it. You just continue on in this, this autopilot that you don't even know it was playing out, like unconsciously acting to please your father. And now you've got a choice. It's like, well, if he's not here, what are you doing things for? That's it. Exactly. That was exactly it. So I ended up taking six weeks off work, stress leave, because like I said, it was a major blow. Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I did while I was off was I really thought, okay, what is it that I want to do, right? Not what should I do, but what is it that I really want to do? And I made a list. I made a list of all of, I call them the God-given talents, but the natural talents. I, gave, mm -hmm. I made a list of all the talents and abilities that I came to this planet with. And then I made a list of all of the things I needed in a job that were going to make myself happy. And I set about trying to find something that would marry these two. So it would allow me to use the things that I, I was happy doing, you doing know, yeah. qualities that I have that I enjoy and the things I know I needed in a job. And uh, it was the days before the internet. So, you know, pretty much heavily reliant on newspapers and people I knew. And I, decided that I would, I thought HR is the thing that I've always done anyway, whether I was paid to or not. I've always been the one that's, you know, been doing the coaching and the listening and mm -hmm. helping people solve problems. And then I thought, yeah, but you have to specialize within HR. And then I thought training, I love doing training and people apparently like when I do like training. you training. Yeah. But still recover. I hadn't, I hadn't moved into the recovering people-pleasing perfectionist yet. I was still a people-pleasing perfectionist. So the perfectionist in me said, yeah, but if you're going to do this, you have to be the best at it that you possibly can. So I took a little bit of the money that my father mm -hmm. left me, and I went to university for adult education and instructional design. Yeah. Wow. And I, walked out, and I walked out of university right into IBM. My first contract was at IBM 500 people in the call center. And then shortly after that, there was a, it was called AIG group of funds at the time. It was a, you know, financial organization, investment organization, 125 people there for customer service training. So it was a sign to me that I was on the right track. And I actually believe that, you know, I believe that when we're on the right path, 
it's like a river, right? When you're on the right path, it flows. But when you're not on the right path, that's when, you know, you've got the rapids and the trees are in the river and the rocks are there and you got to try and navigate around that. I really believe when we have trouble, it's because we're actually not going down the path that we're intended to go down. Oh, my goodness. Do you see why I had to get her on here? Do you see? Do you, can, can you hear why I could not do this show and not have this woman here? Like, you know, some people, they just take all the words, they take them out your mouth and they leave you a little speechless. We're going to do this in two parts because there's so much in there. And I do want to just re-pick up on just for this particular episode if it is difficult, if it is challenging, if it is something you're struggling with, girl, you're not on the right path. That, you heard it here first. Mm -hmm. If you don't believe me, you need to listen to Suzanne. We're going to be back in a, another episode. You've been listening to The LaVelda Show, Women of Power podcast. And if you want to get part two of this juiciness, you had better well, darn well, hit that subscribe button. Ciao!